All right, good morning, Redemption. Well, a quick shout out before we begin. Uh, as we've been in the season of regathering lately, uh, we have had a number of musicians who've gotten sick at times, bands that have been shifting with uh, d- just different complexity in all of the season. And Aaron Amsden, Daniel Zering, who are leading this morning, have been like a rock. Aaron has been pulling like triple time. Daniel has been faithful, but also they've just been loving doing it, leading us all in worship. But I want to give a shout out to them for the way that they've been leading in this season. Well, the hardest part of a marathon is the last six miles. It's the last six miles. First half of a marathon, your adrenaline's going, your energy's pumping. Uh, you're like, man, I can take on the world. Then you get to the second half. <laughs> so I feel tired, exhausted, your energy lagging thin. Not only that, then when you get to about the last six miles, you tend to hit the wall, right? Where the battle becomes even more internal and mental, going, man, am I going to be able to do this? Now, full disclosure, I have never personally actually run a marathon. (laughs) But I talked this week to someone who has. How many of you know Andy Carrillo? Yes, Andy. Andy, shout out. Andy is one of our elders here. He has been a godly, faithful influence over the years in the life of this church. And he is also a runner who has led the Bounding Moosin, a running group uh, over the years here at Redemption that many here in this room probably have been a part of. And I was asking Andy, okay, explain to me, what is it like running a marathon? And the phrase he used was he said, a marathon is a 10K race with a 20-mile warm-up. Right. Like it's, it's a 10K race, the 20-mile warm-up. Like the real heart of the race is the last six miles, but that 20 miles is kind of getting, getting you ready for what's coming. And he said, actually, when you get to that last six miles, the battle is really more internal than external. Like physically, the reality is you can do it, your body can do it, but mentally, emotionally, you just hit the spot where you're like, I got nothing left. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to make it. The hardest part is the last six miles. And I wonder how many of us are in the last six miles of the marathon today. This has been, probably for all of us, a marathon of a year, right? Now, as I've talked with many of us here in this room, I know that many of us have expressed feeling emotionally exhausted, tired, worn thin. We know the holidays are coming soon, but there's still this sense where the the track ahead still feels endless. And we're going, man, can I make it? Can I do this? Well, today we're looking at the story of a guy who finishes a marathon. We're in John 4. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, uh, we're in John 4 as we continue our series on the gospel of John. And in this story, we find an official who travels 32 miles round trip to meet Jesus and go back again. About a length of a marathon, a little longer. And as we're going to see, the last part of his journey is harder than the first. And the difficulty he encounters is more the battle within, the internal battle, sure, than the external physical nature of it. He has to trust Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances, a dying son. We're going to see today how to trust Jesus and press forward when it feels like you've got nothing left. The title for the message today is The Marathon. So let's lace up and get running. 
All right, let's start here in verse 43. John 4, verse 43. We read, After the two days, and that's two days in Samaria, so last week we were in story in Samaria, so after two days in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. So in between Samaria, where he's been, and Cana, where he's going, is Nazareth. He's essentially saying Jesus skipped out on his high school reunion. He passes by Nazareth on the way to Cana. And it says, in, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went uh, to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So stop there. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is on a resurrection mission. Jesus is on a resurrection mission. This is a resurrection scene that we are about to see. John sets up this scene saying, after two days, everyone say two days. Two days, after two days. And what comes after the second day, class? Third day, that's right, the third day. Someone got it, boom. <laughs> and as we've seen in this series, John likes to give us little clues, little windows at the setup for his stories that give us a sense that's framing what's about to happen and where things are going. As we have also seen, the third day is John's way of saying, you're about to see some resurrection, right? About to see a resurrection scene. John is also saying here that this event takes place in Cana. Everyone say Cana. Cana. Now, Cana, if you've been in this John series this far, that should be ringing some little bells, ding, ding, ding. We have seen Cana once before, and it was a similar scenario where in Cana on the third day, Jesus came to a wedding. And we saw that that was the place. In case you forget, John reminds you again here, this is, side note, this is where Jesus turned the water into wine, he tells us. John's letting us know, A, it's the third day, and B, he's coming back to Cana where he turned water into wine at a wedding, which we saw then was a sign of resurrection. It's the first sign in John's gospel. Here in this story, we're gonna see what John calls the second sign. And both are signs of resurrection. They point us to the ultimate reality for why Jesus has come. So John is cluing us in. Before we even get to the official with the dying son who needs to be raised from the brink of death, John is saying, it's the third day. He's coming back to Cana. We're about to see some resurrection. And I wonder who needs to see some resurrection this morning. Is there anyone who feels out of juice in the ditch? You've been running the marathon, but now you're dead dog tired. And you just to show up, just a little cliff bar, some Gatorade, you know, kind of pick you up and keep you going on your way. Well, I've got news, good news for us. John's saying like, that's what we're about to see. Jesus' endgame is resurrection. Christ is out, not just to like clean up your behavior or polish you up a little outside. Jesus has come to raise us up from the grave, to fill us with his spirit, to unite himself with us and to be with us forever. In the marathon of Jesus' ministry, the race that he's running, the finish line is resurrection. 
This means that the end game that we are shooting for in life with Christ is to be ourselves, raised up, united with him forever. This is happily ever after, the fairy tale come true, in his kingdom come, amen. Well, it's a cool story, Jesus, but I'm not living in the fairy tale right now. I'm not in the fairy tale, I think some of us are saying, I'm living more in the dragon's lair right now. I got a boss I can't stand and bills I can't pay. I'm in a marriage that's on the rocks. I don't know that we're going to be able to go the distance. I think some of us might be saying, man, I'm feeling lonely. No one's calling me on the phone. It feels like there's nobody on the sidelines cheering me on. I've got a news feed where everything seems to be unraveling, and I'm scared of where we're heading. I've heard tales of resurrection, but that finish line seems so far away. I've got a child who's sick, who's dying. The doctors have done everything they can do, but I'm desperate. He's got one foot in the grave. An official from Capernaum went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Let's pick up in verse 48. We read, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said back to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Stop there for a moment. What strikes me here is that the official only gets half the answer he's looking for. Jesus only answers half his request. Two times, the official asked Jesus, come down and heal my son. Come down and heal my son. Jesus answers the second half, like your son will live, he heals him. But he doesn't answer the first half. He says, go. Essentially, I ain't going with you. You got to step out on faith and hit the road on your own. If you ever had Jesus only answer half your question. Find yourself praying, Jesus, give me peace and financial stability. And Jesus is like, how about I give you peace amidst your financial instability, right? Or one I love, God, make me a better husband and help my wife to get off my back. And God's like, how about I make you a better husband by helping you navigate the tension at home? Augustine, the famous early church father, he humorously quipped, God, give me chastity, just not yet. <laughs> and God's going, how about I give it to you now? Right? We can find ourselves saying, man, God, take away the cross, but give me resurrection. But God's going, I'm going to go with you through the cross and bring you through to resurrection on the other side. Jesus only answers half the official's request. Why doesn't Jesus go with him? Well, I'll give you my two cents, my theory, my thesis here. I believe that Jesus is building his trust. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus is building his trust uh, in this little back and forth he has with the official. The official says, come down here, my son. Jesus says, uh, unless you see signs, you will not believe. That can sound harsh. Like, dude, his, his son is dying. Like, he's doctor. Heal my son. Like, ah, oh, you're just looking for the firework. No, like, he, he's got a legit request he's come with. I can sound a little harsh, but actually what Jesus says here, 
the word you is plural. So he's actually speaking to the crowds. So he's looking at him going, um, you all are coming to me for signs, but unless you see the signs, you won't trust, you won't believe. And the official comes back and requests again, essentially going like, like, that ain't me. Like, I'll believe even if I don't see. And then Jesus' response, like your son is healed, go. We find that the official does. He believes even when he has not yet seen. The official believes without seeing. It says he believed and obeyed. So Jesus is going, y'all won't believe unless you see some signs. And he's going, I haven't seen the sign yet, but Jesus, I believe. The official trusts Jesus. He takes him at his word. He steps out in faith on the second half of the marathon back home. Jesus is out not only to heal us, but to develop our trust. Not only to give us resurrection, but to build our relationship with him. And just because you trust Jesus enough to step out on that second half of the journey back home, it doesn't mean that the second half of the marathon isn't hard. I wonder what that journey was like for the official on his way back home. I wonder the mental battle, the internal struggle, the emotional tumult that was going on inside, especially the last six miles of that marathon. I imagine him envisioning his wife at the end of the road, upset, going, what are you doing? Like, the whole reason you went was to bring him back here with you. Like, why? Like, why? You failed. Or I imagine him thinking of his son. Like, what if my son is dead and I miss the opportunity to be with him in those final moments, to stroke his hair, to hold his hand, to be with him as his father as he passed? I can imagine this turmoil. What did it cost him to take Jesus at his word? The last six miles of the marathon can be the hardest, the internal battle within. The story has really spoken to me this week. I want to let you in on a little bit of what's going on in my life recently, a marathon I've been in the midst of and where I've been feeling Jesus inviting me to trust him. A few months ago, I began learning, discovering that I've gone blind in one eye, in my right eye. And there has been some concern that it could also happen to the left. So it started earlier this year. I uh, thought I had a cataract. I was noticing out of this eye that things would be kind of blurry at the center of my vision, blurry and gray. So I assumed I had a cataract, went to the doctor. We had cataract surgery, got it scheduled and done. But afterwards, the issue was still there. Didn't fix it. So we began looking deeper and found actually it was a retinal issue in the back of my eye, uh, diagnosed with a condition called macular degeneration. And what this condition means is essentially if I'm looking to, at you out of the side, let's say we're, we're talking, having a conversation, I can see everything peripheral vision just fine, but wherever my point of focus is at is just a patch of gray blur. So it's like I can see everything around you, but I can't see your face. It's just a patch of blur. Now, at first, there was some concern that this can often go to the other eye as well. Uh, now that's actually looking a lot more hopeful, but there's still some concern. There's some similar conditions on that side that they believe led to the development of it on this side. 
And in the midst of that, um, I have been experiencing a variety of emotions. There has been just grief over the loss of sight in one eye, uh, but even more so there's been fear of going, what does this mean if it comes for the other? Right? It can be scary thinking, man, what if I, I can't see my kids' faces as they grow older? What if I am unable to read and write to my favorite things in the world? And when it comes to sense of calling or vocation, uh, I felt called in this season to be able to preach and teach and write. And, you know, a lot of being able to read and write and all that is, is, is pretty significant to some things I feel called to do. And yet in the midst of all that, I you know, believe God heals. I've seen God heal. I've experienced God heal. Myself, so I'm praying, you know, for healing. And yet I've also been experiencing God inviting me to trust, like asking the question, do you trust me? And the answer, of course, is yes. Like, yes, God, I trust you. But the situation itself, it feels like it's pulling layers off of my heart and exposing them and going, okay, God, I want to trust you all the way down from the very depths. And even going, man, God, I trust you that if this is calling, like what you've got for me in this, this next scene, if it's calling, then your plans won't be thwarted, right? Like you got me, you're sovereign. Like, and so I, I, can, I can trust you that this is calling, win, or if the other eye goes, like there'll be a way to adapt or whatever. But I can also trust you on the other side, that if it's not calling, then I don't need it, right? Like if this were to go, like you're sovereign there still, and there's life on the other side. I can trust you even with that. The words of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him been experiencing the invitation from Jesus to trust. And I get the irony. <laughs> I lost my vision in 2020. <laughs> but it's been interesting to look at this passage. I feel like Jesus has given me the other half of the answer from that that he gave the official. I've been sitting Jesus going, hey, I'm going to go with you, but I'm not going to tell you the outcome yet. And yet the invitation has been to trust. Where is Jesus inviting you to trust him today? Where's Jesus inviting you to trust? Maybe it's with your child who walked away from the faith and is living in a way that breaks your heart or you know just isn't right. Maybe it's with your sexual desire that there's just not a legitimate outlet for right now either because that person is an unbeliever or because they're of the same sex or because maybe you've wanted to be married, but you're just, it's not there yet. Jesus is inviting you to trust him on the journey. Maybe for some of you like me, maybe it's a health condition that you've been experiencing or perhaps even harder often, like this official, the health condition of someone that you love. For some of us, it's emotional healing that we need. Maybe not physical, but emotional. As I mentioned, this year has felt like a marathon where I've talked with many of you who expressed feeling, man, it's been a lot of sadness this year through a lot of loss, like the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of that sense of rhythm and stability. Others experiencing a fear of just going, man, I don't know what the future holds either personally or 
just in society right now. For some, there's been anger, kind of being, man, just let down expectations of being at working from home and homeschooling and roommates or just conflict. And just broader, we got a lot of anger and hostility in our society right now, right? (laughs) But I want to invite you seriously to the first Wednesday this week that Will talked about, where we look at why emotions matter. Because I think a lot of us feel exhausted and tired, and the real battle is within. It's like, okay, physically I can go the distance, but internally I just don't know that I got it in me anymore. I feel out of juice. And this Wednesday, as we're looking at why emotions matter, how to process fear, anger, sadness, and other God-given signals. Because you see, sometimes I think we think, man, if I'm feeling afraid or feeling sad, that must mean that I don't really trust God. And that's not true. God has created our bodies. He's given us our emotions. And we want to be able to live in a way that we don't ignore them and kind of stuff them and push them to the side. We also don't want to live in a way that we're driven by them and they overwhelm us and kind of drive us. We want to be looking at this week, how do we discern them and use them wisely as signals and gifts that God has given us. Our speaker this Wednesday, it's awesome. Actually, a friend of mine, Tristan Collins, professional counselor. She's written an amazing book called Why Emotions Matter. She co-authored it with her husband, John Collins. Some of you may know from, uh, he's co-founder of the Bible Project and a resource we've used a lot here. But she is just brilliant, in my opinion, at helping us reclaim a healthy, Christ-centered, God-oriented approach to uh, respecting our emotions as a gift that God's given us, but also knowing how to discern and use them wisely. But wherever we're at this morning, could be something physical, could be something emotional, I believe that Jesus is inviting us to trust. The official trusted Jesus and went on his way. He completed the marathon. Let's pick up in verse 51 and see what he found at the finish line. It says in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, about 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour, the exact hour, That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Well, at the finish line, the official finds that Jesus has been faithful. He discovers that Jesus has been faithful like to imagine him coming around that final stretch, maybe coming over that last hill or around that last bend on this 32-mile marathon plus that he's been on that day. And in the home stretch, his servants are running out. They're cheering him on, and they're telling him, your son is alive. Your son is alive. The official discovers that his son was healed at the very moment Jesus spoke. It's interesting, in our translation here, it says, your son will live. But actually in the Greek, it's your son lives. When Jesus says the word to him, he's like, your son lives. The very moment Jesus spoke, his son was raised. He asked the people around the house, hey, what hour did he start getting better? When did he recover? And they're like, 
1 p.m., seventh hour. So I imagine like he's coming home, maybe about a time it would have taken. It's about sunset, sun's going down, maybe 7, 8 p.m. And he's getting there, his son's alive. It's like, when did it turn? When did things shift? When do you start getting better? And they're like, 1 p.m. And he thinks back, he's like, that's exactly when I left. The one who spoke the world into existence speaks life into his dead son. Have you ever had God orchestrate the timing in a way it's beyond coincidence. I've had multiple circumstances over the years where I kind of get woken up in the middle of the night, have kind of a crazy dream about someone I know, and I feel led to just kind of go out in the living room and get down my knees and just pray for that person. Maybe a day or two later, I'll call or text, and just be, hey, I was thinking about you, praying for you, here's this thing, dream, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, like, how did you know? Like, we haven't talked in a while, there's no way you would have known, but here's the thing I was right in the middle of at that time. I remember another time, it was about 11 p.m. at night, and uh, I was praying, I sensed God saying, hey, call Luke, call your friend Luke. It's like, hey, it's 11 at night. My mom told me, you don't call anyone after 9 p.m. So I'm like, I'm not breaking mom's rule. Like, I, God was like, no, give him a call. I'm like, all right. So I call him, and he picks up. He's like, oh my gosh, how did you know? I'm like, how do I know what? It's like, my wife had an emergency situation. We had to rush her to the emergency room. She's about to go on for surgery. And I was like, is there anyone you want here with you? And she said, I'd really love it if Josh could be here, but I feel bad this late at night. And I know it's crazy, but stuff that, you know, I don't want to call him right now. And then you call him. I was able to go in and be with them at the hospital. I was talking to a friend this week who uh, was fasting and praying for someone that he knows and loves that was going through a tough time. And, and so he took this day, he was fasting and praying for them. And the friend texted him that day and going, are you fasting for me? <laughs> He's like, what? How'd you know? I'm like, dude, I feel the presence of Jesus surrounding me. And I just felt this sense like you're fasting. Right. Yeah. Jesus's word is powerful. He's not bound by distance in the same way that we are. Jesus' word is powerful. Today, he is exalted at the right hand of God over all of heaven and earth. And yet that distance is no obstacle. All he has to do is speak and things move. Chains break, graves open, and people come forth. Jesus' word is powerful. Now this can raise a difficult question though, an important question. Uh, why do some people get healed and not others? Right? Why do some people get healed and not others? This is an important question, a significant question raised by our text. And one of my favorite answers uh, comes from a pastor in the UK, Andrew Wilson. Uh, someone I've met, interacted with a few times, just a uh, really great guy, amazing pastor. And he uh, wrote an article once called God Always Heals. And he talks in that about this tension that he experiences as a pastor. And the tension is that on the one side, he's like, and in our church, I've seen dozens of people healed every year. Like I know God heals. He talks about how this year, you know, he saw, uh, not this year now, but when he wrote it, uh, but this year saw a woman who was wheelchair bound since, uh, since whenever, you know, and, and able to get up and was able to cancel her disability insurance that year. And the news crews came out and did a story on her, someone at their church, it's like, I've seen uh, this year someone who was born deaf, uh, but then was healed and was on the phone, kind of called their spouse and was talking with them, able to hear from the other end of the phone for the first time. 
So he's like, I know on the one hand that God heals. He goes, on the other side though, I have two young children with regressive autism. And as it has taken hold, they are no longer able to sing or to clap or to paint. It's like, man, we have prayed. God, we have prayed. And yet there is this tension that I know God heals. And yet it seems not all the time. And there are polarized views on this. So there are the perhaps health and wealth preachers who would say, well, if you haven't been healed, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. And we know that's not true. Very clear biblically, that's not true. Then you can have skeptics on the other side who just, God never heals, doesn't do that kind of thing. And Andrew's going like, man, I've seen it happen. Like I know he does. His response to that I found so helpful is this. He says, the real question is not if God will heal, but when. The real question is not if God heals, but when. Because the reality is resurrection's coming. God is bringing healing for his world. And sometimes we get to experience that not yet breaking into the now. We get to experience signposts today of the healing that is coming for all of God's creation. But the response is sometimes yes and sometimes not yet. He says that this phrase, God always heals. He says there's four types of healing. Sometimes God heals with your body's immune system, white blood cells, red blood cells, like battling sickness, infection thing in your body. Uh, God will heal through your body's immune system. Sometimes God heals through prayer and physical healing, like a few of those examples mentioned earlier. A third way, sometimes God heals by doctors and nurses. About five years ago, we thought we had almost lost our daughter, a permanent condition that it looked like was never going to change. And I'm so grateful for the doctors and the nurses who were able to bring healing and restoration. And yet the fourth type Wilson draws our attention to you is resurrection. And that's coming because Jesus's mission is a resurrection mission. I want to read this quote from this article, God Always Heals. He says that on that day, the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised in the twinkling of an eye, never to perish again. Corrupted bodies become incorruptible. Sickness and affliction will never again befall them. The sterile smell of the operating room corridor is no more. Octogenarians formerly bound to hospital rooms are given a new life, a new youth that will never be stolen by the march of time. Every deaf ear is unblocked. Every damaged limb is repaired. Every blind eye sees. Schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease are swallowed up in victory. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Nobody cries except with joy. This is my favorite part. God never says no to a request for healing. He either says yes, as it was for two people in my church while I was writing this article, or not yet, as it has been so far for my children. One day, their disorders and ultimately death will be swallowed up in victory. I can't wait. And I love that. God always heals. Sometimes he says yes. And sometimes he says, not yet. But resurrection is coming. Church, I believe Jesus would say to us 
today is remember what you're running for. This marathon, remember what you are running for, that we are running for resurrection. So I was talking to Andy Carrillo this week and he was telling me about this marathon. He shared a story. He told me about his first marathon he ever ran. And he said, I got to about the 18, 20 mile mark and I hit the wall. I was like, God, I got nothing left in me. I can't go any farther. He's feeling the battle within. It's like, man, I know, maybe I know my body can, can make it, but I just, I can't. Like I've got nothing left in me. The tank is empty. And he said, as he was about to give up, he was thinking of calling it quits. He saw up ahead, there was a woman who ran out into the middle of the track with a camera and started to take a picture. And he was like, do I know her? Like, do I know you? Like, who is this? And as he got closer running, he doesn't recognize her, but she yells out. She says, hey, team in training, I'm alive because of you. I'm alive because of you. What he realized, team in training was organization he was running with for leukemia, runners for leukemia. And she explained uh, that it was because of the funds that had been raised, the research that had been done, that she was now alive. Her life was prolonged. She was living. And, she, and Andy said, when I heard that, I found the strength within. I remembered what I was running for, and I remembered what I was running towards. And I was able to make the last six miles the marathon. The finish line that you're running towards, church, is resurrection. When we get to that finish line, we will find that Christ has been faithful. So the invitation this morning is to the faithful one, Jesus, the risen son. Because Jesus it's not only the one who raises the dying son, he is the dying son who was raised. John says this event is a sign of the gospel. And in the gospel, Jesus is the ultimate son of the ultimate royal official, God, the father, the king over all of heaven and earth and the eternal father of his beloved son, Jesus. And Jesus is the one who comes down and goes into the depths and carries our sickness, our infirmity, our death into the grave in order to bury it there. And as we come to communion today, we come to the risen son, Jesus, who offers and gives us himself, the resurrection and life of the world. So we're going to receive the elements of communion now. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And we want to start with the bread, a sign of Christ's body broken and given for us. I invite you to take the bread and receive that. We also now take the wine, the juice, the sign of his blood shed, his life poured out, that we might have life again in him. Let's receive that. As we come to respond in worship, to worship Christ, our risen King, your healing is secure because Christ is risen from the grave. He has carried your sickness, infirmity, and death, and he has 
carried it to bury it in the grave. Our hope is secure because the God of hope is faithful. Your resurrection is secure because he has risen. We can place our trust in the resurrected son. So would you please stand and let's worship him together.